Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti-Vietnam War and anti-conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, this is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast, for clarity, and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. Oh, it was, it was amazing. Yeah, I'd never, I mean, I'd been on lots of demonstrations, but they were usually pretty low-key, you know, pretty small affairs. That moratorium, that first one, was fantastic at just the numbers and, and the variety of people that were present. It, it wasn't just young people and it wasn't just left-wing people and it wasn't just working-class people. There were all sorts it really did feel like being, you know, part of a mass movement. And that was pretty rare. All the, the campaigns that I'd been involved in previously, they'd all been sort of a bit very minority sort of things and definitely not part of the mainstream at all. So, yeah, it was, it was a different feeling altogether. On the 8th of May 1970, tens of thousands of people gathered in the middle of Melbourne in the middle of the day. Depending on who you ask, between 60 and 100,000 people were actively involved. This was the first moratorium, a day for people to, to quote their slogan, stop work to stop the war, that is, the Vietnam War. It was intended to be a day for people to show their opposition to both the Vietnam War and the National Service Act. This wasn't exclusive to Melbourne. Moratorium marches happened in most capital cities. By this time, my father was in Vietnam, having been conscripted through the National Service Act. Family law says that his father, my grandpa, marched in the Adelaide Moratorium while my dad was in Vietnam. For context... The population of Melbourne at this time, 1970, was around 2.5 million people. In comparison, the 2003 rally against the Iraq war also drew, apparently, around 100,000 people. By that stage, the population of Melbourne was around 3.6 million people. There had been a massive moratorium march in America in November 1969, and there was a sense among Australian anti-war groups that such a thing might have a similar response here. 
The organisers launched a massive advertising campaign with Dr Jim Cairns writing pieces for publication in major newspapers in the weeks leading up to it. The media was full of discussion about the upcoming event, both for and against, including statements from staunch anti-communists like Bartholomew Santa Maria forecasting terrible violence on the day. There was also commentary from politicians, with Billy Snedden, the Federal Minister for Labor and National Service at the time, declaring in Parliament that the anti-war movement were, and I quote, a pack of political bikies pack-raping democracy. In truth, most of the organisers of the moratorium were determined that there would be no violence from their side. As I said, moratorium marches were held all over Australia, but by far the largest was in Melbourne, and many women were involved in organising as well as attending. In this episode, we start with women who were involved in organising the march and then move on to individual experiences at the march. I won't always say who's speaking when, but if you'd like to know their names, you can check out the website, which has a detailed list of credits. We begin with Jean McLean, who was a key organiser of the moratorium. The he that Jean McLean mentions at the start is Jim Cairns, a federal Labor politician who had been speaking against conscription in particular pretty much from the start. I should also note that throughout the episode, you'll hear some people mention CICD. That was the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament, and they were a significant group in the organising of anti-war events. He was the chair of the moratorium. And so, you know, we had to do the work because he was in Parliament <laughs> You know, but he'd come to address meetings. But he was a very important figurehead because he spoke very, very well against war. So anyway, the, the moratorium movement in, in Melbourne, uh, we started uh, with a meeting of all the different groups, Save Our Sons, the Youth Campaign Against Conscription, uh, all the different groups. We met in the Richmond Town Hall and we worked out programs, including, like, we used to go and, I was, Jim was the chair, I was deputy chair, um, Bernie Taft was another deputy chair and um, Harry Van Moorst was for one of the deputy chair. Anyway, we'd have meetings and we'd go and address people at through, through working with the trade union movement at all the factory doors. Sometimes we're allowed in the, the dining room depending on the makeup of the factory. Others we had to speak at the gates. But we did that. We went, you know, just hundreds of meetings. We went and, and distributed leaflets. We raised funds. So that by the time May the 8th turned up, there were just hundreds and hundreds of people. I became the person who coordinated and helped to generate new local groups, and we right. ended up with 20 of them. 
um, the local moratorium, moratorium committee. Yep, yeah, yep. yeah, they were moratorium committees. They weren't mm. um, CICD groups and they mm. weren't peace council groups. Like I lived in Kew at the time. I had this brief period living in the suburbs. In the Kew group, there were women who I knew voted Liberal and stuff like that. I can't remember if each time there was a big meeting, people sent delegates. They might have. I can't remember that. But that was a pretty big deal. Mostly what people in the in the suburban groups did was they'd go to the shopping centres invariably on a Saturday and sometimes, you know, if there were enough people around or it was, you know, a busy day, they might go during the week. But definitely on Saturday, they'd hand out leaflets, they'd talk to people, they'd set up a little store, mm. they'd talk to people, they'd hand out leaflets, they'd invite people to come to meetings or, you know, whatever, things like that. They'd get speakers to come to local halls or to someone's house yep. to talk about what was going on, what was being planned, you know, why it was important to do it and so on. I went to the meetings, which, if I recall correctly, the as a dele- delegate for the Labor Club, if I recall correctly, the meetings were in a hotel and uh, the upstairs lounge of a big hotel in the city. And Jim Cairns, the late Jim Cairns, uh, chaired the meeting. And there were groups from a wide range of, range of backgrounds and philosophies, but yes. And we, within the Labor Club, had debates about whether, whether the moratorium is just, you know, bourgeois middle-class movement and should we take part in it, but we did. Yeah, so as the delegate to that, was that something that you volunteered for? Did somebody ask you to go along as the, the delegate? It was probably a bit of both. But the idea was that we'd try and influence the move, the, the moratorium movement and pull it a bit more to the left. That was always the, the strategy when we worked in with other groups that were off campus to be an influence within them. Do you, do you think you succeeded with the moratorium committees? Uh, well, I think, yeah, I think, I think we were an influence because we did put, put our views. Yeah, yeah, and we certainly were allowed to, or we we took, you know, Viet Cong flags and made our presence felt. And I was part of an organising committee in my local area because Jim Cairns and people like that were sort of behind organising cells, if you like, people all over the place to try and get everybody together. And uh, so, yeah, um, I I went along there religiously every week, I think it was, uh, to plan, you know, what we would do and how we'd manage it. How big was the local group? Are we talking like a dozen people or...? Oh, once again, I don't know that I want to be quoted on that, but probably at least a dozen, I suppose. There was some people from all over, you know, probably, yeah, maybe... 15 or so people, which is, you know, a reasonable size for just one small group in Oakley, you know. In those uh, local committees, was it, did it feel like it was either mostly men or mostly women or was it just mixed? It was a bit of a mixture. There were a few more older people, you know, pacifists and stuff uh, that I know, I sort of recall, because, you know, we 
we had by that time we'd been pretty militant at demonstrations and I think they were a bit wary of these young radicals, you know. They didn't want us to do anything like we'd done in 1968. You know, they wanted it to be a peaceful march, which it was. Well, I think what was interesting about that period, 1968, 1969, 1970, was that you had people from very different philosophical and ideological backgrounds who were able to more or less agree on a set of strategies for opposing the war. The motivations might have been different and sometimes the actions were different, but sometimes everybody could come together for the one action as we did for the Vietnam moratorium. Dad had been saying to colleagues and comrades, we'll have 40,000 people at this. Oh, Sam, for goodness sake, don't, you know, don't be silly. That's, you know, so optimistic. You'll see. No, you'll see. I bumped into him. He was sort of racing up to Treasury Gardens. And I was, you know, people were still sort of moving down Burke Street. Dad, Dad, turns around and comes over and he puts his arm around my shoulder. Look at this, he says. They said, I said, told them. And uh, what did he say? I'm just trying to remember how it went. Oh, he said, that's right. He said, 20,000, my ass. Look at this, he said. <laughs> and he's such, he says, it's got to go. And he went off up Burke Street to the Treasury Gardens. I look at the classic photo of me on the, on the back of a truck in, in Burke Street, I think it was, and the whole of Burke Street's, you know, locked down. I mean, there's a few photos of that, of that and, one, and one of them you can see Jim Cairns behind me on the truck. But if you look closely, you know, there's one microphone. I've got an acoustic. We didn't do plug-in guitars back then. And I have an acoustic guitar and one microphone. And, well, for a start, you need a minimum of two outdoors with, you know, rather large gathering on the back of a truck. However, it, it seems to work. It was part of the tapestry that, that uh, obviously did the trick. That was amazing. That was wonderful because that was so big that they couldn't pick anyone off. That's that's a thing I learnt. You've got to have a big demonstration in order to not be in danger. You know, with those smaller ones, you could feel the hostility from the police and I don't think it came from the police, you know. I think it was from much higher up and... You could feel it, and you could feel it as soon as you arrived, the way the horses were, the way they were positioned, the way they moved around. But at the moratoria, you couldn't. That was too big for them. And so they just had to stand by and watch. And and it was sort of wonderful. It was great that you had those leaders leading the march, like Jim Cairns and um, uh, Sam Goldblum. So it was it was really good that you you knew that you were you were safe in that. And it was great when you went to a demonstration and you didn't see people you knew because there were so many people there. That's when I knew it was really good. Well, it was it was amazing because 
It was amazing because, there were, you know, that was the first time in, for me anyway, to be in, in, to be in that where, where there was such a broad, not just, you know, a small group of uh, Monash Labor Club and a few other students from other universities, but he really had a sense that this was a, a real genuine mass movement. And that was just so lifting and inspiring. And, and you know, like when we were a group of us, um, and there was, again, we were a group of women and one of us, one of my friends was holding and then the left flag. And, and people around us were just, you know, like, were smiling at us, you know, we're saying hello to strangers and saying, you know, um, saying how great this is, and and it, it was it was almost like the the moratorium was like like a release of this pressure generally about this social socially oppressive environment, you know, and and and, and, I, and yeah, it was incredibly. Incredibly inspiring. And also we felt so powerful. It's like there's so many of us and it's and everyone is united. And I, I was working and I took a day off work and to attend the moratorium and no one batted an eyelid at, at my work. Were there people from your work who also went to the moratorium? Yeah, there were two two others that went, yeah. But but it was kind of like an accepted thing that you know, people are going to go because, you know, we've had enough. I come the moratorium day, the other teacher, the other woman teacher in the school said, oh, do you know what time we're finishing up for the holidays? And I said, I don't know, but I hope it's early. And she said, yes, so do I. And it, so it turned out that we were both wanting to go into the city to the moratorium. It hadn't come out before then. Neither of us knew the other's politics. And, of course, the principal, the headmaster he was called, he was a conservative old bugger <laughs> and so we weren't going to let on to him but we hadn't let on to each other either. We'd had lunch together every day in the lunchroom and we had never, we didn't have an inkling that either of us were supporting the moratorium. And it was a... Incredible surprise and, and delightful surprise that, uh, and the moment that you know the university people had, and had come down from the top of Burke Street by Parliament House, and the unions had come up from West Melbourne, uh, and suddenly when we all saw each end of Burke Street packed, I mean, ever since I've used that as my measure of how many people are in a demo, but. It was extraordinary feeling of of, of, of solidarity and of not being alone, um, and that the rest of the community, a lot of part of the community was was feeling the same. I mean, in anticipation of it, there was a, a very big fear that there was going to be major violence, and my mother used to work in a laundrette in Paran, East Paran. And the owner of the laundrette's son was in the army. And while she was working the day before, uh, he'd come in and had talked about how they were preparing to attack if they got the chance or need, were needed and how the strategy was that they were to, to fill up all the lanes along Burke Street 
which is why one of the reasons why the Melbourne grid is designed that way is the way you control restive natives, that you can have posses of police and top troops down side streets. Um, they went prepared and they were expecting to, to be able to attack the demonstrators uh, and the police probably the same, I'm not sure. but um, And so, you know, she was very nervous, um, but she went on her own from home. My father went from work and I went from the university. Uh, but nothing happened because the numbers were far too big. No one expected it to be so big. And there hadn't been a demonstration of that size before, I think, ever in Melbourne, a political one. I mean, there'd been riots, there'd been bread riots, there'd been uh, big riots over in the 1920s, um, but nothing like this. So, you know, there were just too many people that, and, and it was peaceful and it just overwhelmed. So I think it was a very emotional day um, and people felt suddenly that they could declare themselves. Um, my parents' neighbour uh, he came home from work early and he saw my mother and they said, did you go on a walk today? I went on a walk, you know. And so there's a sense that people had been hiding their views because you'd always had to hide your left-wing views. You couldn't be open about it. So we went to Melbourne for the moratorium. We didn't know what was going to happen because people like Bloody Snedden talked about... Um, people pack-raping democracy. And, you know, we thought we could get bashed by the police or anything, you know, but we went. And, and it was, of course, it was just amazing. It was probably one of the best experiences of my whole life. There was 100,000 people in the street. So that was amazing. It wasn't in the least bit intimidating because the sheer weight of numbers. We were just so thrilled and the range of people all um classes and you know all that sort of thing it was fantastic it was the biggest demonstration of democracy in action i've ever seen it was it was wonderful it was quite fun and when we had to lie down we were all lying on the ground and i suppose symbolizing other people could i don't know what it was this pen I was part, part, half drunk, rolled out of the pub and started singing in the most beautiful opera voice, I have often walked on this street before. <laughs> it was quite funny. So we felt safe. There was no danger. No, we didn't have a prime minister then saying, oh, aren't you lucky you're not being shot? So we felt safe. That was one thing. Nobody felt. There was no, nothing about violence. I found it a bit life-affirming, perhaps. I think we didn't expect the numbers that we did get and the people, the range of backgrounds that people came from. It, it was the first time we really had a sense that um, we had been effective and that we'd reached out to, you know, a wide range of community members. For example, when my mother marched, she was marching next to someone she hadn't met before who was a policeman's wife. Um, there were students, you know, young people, old people. It was, you know, it was um, just overwhelming. To, um, so many people over a, a number of years had had their opinions changed.
and had come across to oppose the war. It was spectacular. It was the biggest thing I'd ever had anything to do with. They, people just marched, uh, marched for, for miles. Like we used to go to the May Day demonstrations or marches. Um, um, mostly uh, they were socialist or communist party people who were running those um, and they were always pretty good and I was pretty impressed with you know the Albanian dances and all that sort of colourful stuff that used to go on but the moratorium was a different thing altogether. Did you go with other students from Latrobe? Yeah yeah we would have gone in a bus in a bus. I'm pretty sure buses were organised probably by the student unions and so on. And no, we went in a great big group and look, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I can remember standing on a, a seat, I think. There was a seat up near, um, outside Parliament House on the other side of the road. So it would have been the corner of Burke Street and Spring Street. Because when I'm passionate about something, I really go. And uh, I don't know if it was true, but the story was, was the government or the, uh, the, um, uh, the the police were deliberately redirecting trucks. So trying to get trucks to turn left from Spring Street down Burke Street to stop us from sitting down and marching because there was many thousands there. I understand 100,000 sat down eventually. And the trucks were being directed to go down and, you know, to, to well, not mow us down, but obviously to threaten us and everything. And um, I remember standing up there on the seat with somebody else and saying, pointing at them and go away and, you know, don't do this and think of, you know, whatever. And I, I just remember standing up there and doing that. I didn't have a loud hailer. But um, none, none of the trucks drove down. They didn't. They kept on going. But I understood there was a whole lot of trucks there and, and we were told that, oh, look, they're deliberately sending the trucks down to mow us down and everything. What made you decide to go? I suppose some of it would be um, Jim Cairns. Jim Cairns and the emphasis on Pete spoke to me so that even though I was a timid little person, you know, and a loner, I, I, I went to the march because I thought, that was the right thing to do. And, and I, I do have vivid recollections of looking across the street to the wall-to-wall people and thinking, you know, this is significant. And, I mean, I've been to many marches since then, but that's, that's been the biggest one and perhaps the most impactful so it wasn't a, a scary experience to be there with so many people? I always are on the gutter edge. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm never literally in the centre of things. You know, I always want to know that I could slip into a, you know, store or... But though on, on that particular day, you kind of couldn't move except with the flow of people. I just remember attempting to count them because I knew the papers always underestimated things and it might have been afterwards when it had come out in the paper that so many people were involved and I thought that doesn't sound right to me and so I sort of counted however many I thought would go like it was Spring Street down to Myers that's how it was uh, it was just incredible thousands and thousands and thousands of people 
Yeah, I, and I, I reckon there'd been about 100,000 people there and I think there probably were, but I don't think the papers said that. I think I think the papers well underestimated and, of course, they underestimate anything that's a complaint. They underestimated the Women's Liberation Movement demos as well. It suits them to underestimate things like that. Oh, it was wonderful. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, to think that so many people sort of agreed with what you were thinking and had thought for a long, long time and were prepared to come out because a lot of people might think it, but they don't come out necessarily. But I think, see, the picture started coming of all those children being bombed and running away from the war. And as I said, there was so much publicity, so many photos came out and people were just getting horrified. And um, and so to go on those marches, it was it was a wonderful thing. You know, it was exhilarating to be there. Didn't feel a bit frightened at all. Everybody was smiling and happy, and they weren't happy about the war, but they were happy about the protest. And uh, ASIO was there, of course, taking all the pictures. Do you remember how you heard mm-hmm. about the moratorium coming up? I think it was everywhere. It was on. It was always. It was discussed on the news. But I think we probably would have got a, a, you know information in through because my brother or my brother who was at RMIT at the time he would have brought information yeah. in. But I think it was everywhere. How did you make the decision that you should ditch school and go to the moratorium? How do you come to that choice? Well, I just, I, I just felt I had to do it. That the. the that we had to show as much. It had come. It come at a time. Listening to Jim Cairns, um, he made a lot of sense. Oh, it was wonderful. That no, it was one like. I mean, the atmosphere was just amazing. I mean, I I was very honest in that piece that I wrote, like stepping off the train, like, wow, but. There was, there was a group of, you know, and they were had been drinking or whatever outside Young and Jackson's, and they was like skinheads or whatever. And um, I mean, they were look, looking, and we were called all sorts of names. But you know, you just yeah. And I, I wasn't actually someone that because we lived at Croydon. I mean, going into the city was a real big oh, you know, put on your best clothes, and <laughs> it, it was a special outing. <laughs> I would say that probably my mum had to give me the train fare. I didn't have any money of my own. So um, I had to work my way up to IMIT. And, of course, the students there, they were in they, all the different clubs were going to be marching as their own thing. And, but I was to meet my brother, and, of course, he was nowhere in sight. So that's why I ended up, I joined another group of students and it turned out it was more <laughs> it was Albert Langer and if there was going to be any trouble that day it was and they did when we got to um when we got past the stock exchange they had flower bombs already and they did they threw flower bombs but, but the police ignored them and everybody else said no don't stop don't stop keep going so I think it was there was only about two you know flower Bombs and I think they were even 
to, you know, everybody could was gobsmacked about how many. I mean, that was there was a hundred thousand people. Like when you look at the city of Tumen, I, 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 and I think Jim Cairn, I think everybody was overwhelmed. And when we got down to sit in Burke Street, like I worked my way up because I was on my own then. So I just, oh, this is good. Elbowed my way, didn't have, didn't know, you know, I didn't have to be with anybody, didn't have to hold any banners, didn't have to do anything. So I'm, I, I managed to get right up sitting as close as possible to when right in the centre of Burke Street. And um, it was, it, it was just amazing. So the EU room was on the third floor of the Union building and we had our own room which, we, which all our social time was spent. We met there and the leader of it was, of our little group, was Ross Langmead who has since passed away and he led us with a guitar. So he was very much into pro protest songs, Peter, Paul and Mary, into that sort of stuff. And so we marched behind the Christians for Peace involved lots of different Christian groups, so church groups, lots of different Christian groups. But we had our own Melbourne Uni EU group for now. I can't actually remember how many people. I would say 20, but I really can't remember. But we were behind him playing his guitar, walking down. So we met at the EU building and we had banners. I was too scared to carry a banner because I felt like I was doing the wrong thing. Mm. Like I felt really naughty. Why did you do it then? Because I respected the people that I'd met at EU. So this is May 1970. I'd only yeah. been there since February. But I respected their opinions enormously. But my sister, who's more conservative than I am, even though they were originally her friends, she didn't march. She said, Sue, it's not the right thing to do because it's against the law. Whereas I decided to because I thought it was important. So we met on the third floor. We walked down through the union. People watched us, whatever. And then, of course, we then just walked down Swanson Street, which is where everyone walked. I was, I was thinking last night whether it was Elizabeth Street, but I think it's Swanson Street. I think it was Swanson Street. And then the big sitting down was mostly in Burke Street, I That's understand. right. Yes, yeah. I remember. Yes. So the union was sort of like in the middle of Melbourne Uni. So you've got, we could have gone the Elizabeth Street Way or the Swanson. So we walked through into the Swanson Street Way and walked down Swanson Street and singing actually Christian songs, which is a bit random. And then the sit-down was, like, a bit frightening. And, and I was terrified that I might be arrested. I felt terrified at the beginning. While we were marching, I found it quite exhilarating. And looking around and looking beyond my small group, our Melbourne Uni group, looking around and seeing other groups. And I was interested to see that they were, as I said, some were church groups, some were political groups. It was probably, probably one of the first things I did that extended, that broadened my mind beyond my upbringing, because my upbringing was extremely conservative. Marching in that moratorium, I feel proud that I was actually looking at other people that I would never have come across in my normal world. What was it like to be a marshal? What sorts of things did you end up having to do on the day? Not much. Move forward, move forward, because people kept coming. We ended up almost to Elizabeth Street and over to Flinders Street and almost to Lonsdale Street and all the way up to the Treasury Gardens. It was phenomenal. So you didn't experience any, 
like there were no problems. I know beforehand there were lots of discussions about there was going to be violence and so on. Thank you. Was this Snedden? Was, oh, uh, Snedden and, and who was it? Balti, I think, was the Premier then. Yeah. Yeah. Moron. <laughs> no <laughs> problems that you, you saw? Could, how could you make problems with 100,000 people? Yeah. You'd have a riot. You couldn't possibly... All people just moved. There was nothing much for a marshal to do. Yeah. All you could do was keep people moving down. So this was after the speeches, probably. Mm. I can't remember the sequence, actually. Maybe it was before the speeches. There were just so many people. You had to move them. They couldn't fit in the garden. So all you could do is just keep people moving. And the street was just the complete width of the street. I mean, there were just there were people hanging out of windows, office and shop windows. There were people on the street. Some people joined in, lots of people applauding. And the crowd was really varied, I understand. Like from the photos, it looks like there was a really big cross-section of population in Absolutely. terms of types yeah. of people. Mm. Well, you know, the ladies in the Q branch of the Victoria Moratorium Company are very well-groomed, well-heeled, expensive haircuts. And you go somewhere else and they, you know, just working-class stiffs and long-haired uni <laughs> students, yeah. That was the thing about it, that it was... People were mightily pissed off. They wanted the kids to come home or the whole lot to come home. It went across the board. And I think it certainly was a very important uh, component in our involvement and Whitlam certainly picked it up. And I don't know how uh, he would... Well, I don't really know how anti-war... I mean, he was. He, was, he probably was a very decent man, I think, but it certainly helped that there are a lot of people, every time he'd mentioned the word moratorium or Vietnam, the response when he talked around when he was campaigning was immediate. He got the message loud and clear that this was a very important issue for people, which it was, which is why he did good things when he got elected in 72. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women, Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, Maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. You can find a complete list of them on my website, womenconscriptionwar.com, as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother Glenn Tomasetti's music in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast. Mm-hmm.